0: The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to to support support the show. But for
1: now, welcome welcome to to The Legendarium.
0: Legendarium.
2: I've never had to talk about it with anyone before, and so I've never said any of these things like five Griffin children out loud. So I'm only just realizing (laughs) (laughs) that... What I sent you is completely bananas.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Legendarium podcast and to the next installment in our author's shelf series. I'm Craig Hanks. I'm your host. And over there, well, he is thicker than a George Martin novel and about as much pure fun to read, too. It's uh, Ryan Bruckman. And we're still
0: waiting for me to finish anything.
1: Well, that's true. Uh, <laughs> and hers is a very sad tale. It's a sad, sad tale of getting so successful so young. She couldn't even drink to her own book's success. It's, <laughs> it's Veronica Roth. How are you? <laughs>
2: uh, I, that's not entirely accurate. I was 22. But
1: I, okay, fine. I, Close I the joke. I'm sorry. You it's know what? That's it's, really uh, the goal. It's, you funnier, now. It. <laughs> yeah, but it's funnier now. Yeah, I believe it's funnier now. Good. Uh, Anyway, anyway, welcome back everyone to the Author Shelf series where instead of asking authors the same questions they've heard in dozens of interviews, and because we're not smart enough to come up with really good new ones, we ask a best-selling author to pull someone else's book off of their shelf, something personally meaningful or influential or just plain nostalgic, as a slightly different way to get to know your favorite authors. So today, like I said, we have Veronica Roth, who you know as the author of Divergent, and who recently released her first fantasy novel for adults called Chosen Ones. And we are going to talk about that a little bit later in the episode. Uh, Veronica has selected the 1998 children's fantasy parody, Dark Lord of Durkholm by Diana Wynne-Jones. So the book is about 22 years old, and I refuse to take any abuse about spoilers. So don't even (laughs) even try. But I, I will say we'll try to hold off on talking about the end of the book for a few minutes and we'll we'll spoiler alert, I guess, uh, when we get there. But I just don't wanna hear anybody on Twitter adding me for our spoilers, so. Yeah, come on. <laughs> uh, so, Veronica, let's start with the obvious question here. Why did you choose this book? Well, I think because um, it was one
2: of the first times that I'd ever read anything that kind of poked fun at itself, like was kind of meta. Um, I read it when I was a teenager, and it doesn't seem to be one of Diana Wynne-Jones's more popular works, so um, I'm not sure how I found it exactly, (laughs) but um, it's kind of, I had read more serious fantasy and science fiction before this book, and this was the first time that I'd seen someone just poke and poke and poke fun at it, Um, and that was really exciting, I think, so it was kind of an influential work for me in that way.
1: How old were you when you picked it up the first time?
2: Oh gosh, I don't even know. I think I was a little older than its target audience because I think it, well, it's hard to say because, you know, the whole young adult genre didn't exist really when this book was written. So I think it might've been in that. There's some things about this book that are like shockingly like advanced and then some of them (laughs) feel like real children's fiction. So it's very strange and hard to place. But anyway, I think I was like 15,
1: Okay. Was it yeah. like an enterprising middle school librarian who handed it to you? Maybe something no. like that.
2: I think it was pure picked it up off the shelf. Like okay. random discovery. That's mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I do. I do like the original cover with the it, there's Griffin and the dark Lord on the back of the Griffin and all that stuff. Um, yeah. And we're going <laughs> to, we'll talk about what the book is actually about. But Ryan, I do want to ask you as well. Uh, how did
0: you just broad overview? How'd you enjoy the book? Did you have a good time with it? I did honestly. Uh, this was. I didn't know what to expect when you said it was a children's uh, parody. I was like, "What? What am I going to be reading here?" Children and I, don't get parody. That's that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> but. I, I once you brought it up, I went over and hopped on my Kindle and I was like, OK, let's let's take a look at this. Saw Griffin on the cover. I'm like, OK, we've got fantasy. I'm I'm feeling pretty good about this. Let's let's see where this goes. And uh, honestly, really just I've enjoyed the the whole uh, the whole story. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was very reminiscent to me uh, in terms of the feeling I had, not necessarily story wise, but the feeling I had when we read The Truth uh, by Terry Pratchett. Yep. Where it was just it was fun. It was a beautiful, magical world, but it was just fun to be there. And the characters were ones that you, you, you just enjoyed being uh, to hear their their process and to go through. And you you wanted to cheer for them. And I wasn't really overly concerned about uh, any major, dark, grim, dark moments of oh no, <laughs> you know, we're who's going to sever the head in this book? You know, it's yeah. Just not it was just really a calm and enjoyable read. Kit disemboweled the soldiers <laughs> with a swipe of his. His uh, eight inch talons. talons. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. No, I I kind of feel the same way as I because I looked it up before I started reading it, and I said, okay, so it's a British fantasy humor book from the late '90s. This has got to have shades of Pratchett, and so I was kind of on the alert for that. Um, I and I kind of felt like it was it was very different from him, but you did have kind of the echoes, that same kind of British humor uh, from the yeah. time. So yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that um but in this case i i like how do i put it the humor in this book was simultaneously um well, oh how do i want to put it it was let's let's put it this way it was uh it, it was much more underneath the surface pratchett just throws a joke at you at least every paragraph it's like you're it's like a stand-up routine you're just laughing the entire time all the way through Uh, this one is a lot more subtle with its humor uh, situational humor a lot of times and yeah anyway so I did enjoy it quite a bit but let's talk about what the book is actually about so that if anybody hasn't read it and they uh, they want to get the quick uh, the quick summary Ryan do you want to take us really quickly through what happens in this book Sure, thank you for throwing the summary to me
0: on a whim. This is great. (laughs) Yep, I'm putting the quarter in you and uh, let's ride the ride, here we go. So the premise here is that we have this magical world that uh, you can access, that has been accessed by a portal uh, from this normal world, just kind of what we would have our normal everyday thing. And a gentleman by the name of Mr. Chesney runs Pilgrim Parties, where people from our type of world can enter this magical world and go on this Dungeons and Dragons-esque quest that has been 100% staged by the people in this world, uh, meant to feel real and everything for them. Uh, but as you go through, you realize that uh, the people on the, in, in the enchanted world are very much tired of these pilgrim parties. They have been taking advantage of the world. Uh, it is a, it's a big problem and they wanna get rid of them. And so the, they start the whole story off by trying to figure out how do we end the pilgrim parties? And these oracles tell them, Well, first guy you see, that's your Dark Lord. The second guy you see, make him a wizard guide. And then we meet Dirk and his son, Blade, and the whole family. And they become, Dirk becomes the Dark Lord. Blade becomes a wizard guide. And we meet all their family of griffins and pigs and flying horses, or flying pigs and flying horses. And it's just the most absurd family that you come to love. And they start setting out to prepare for these pilgrim parties. And then they start coming through and you have to deal with, the pilgrim parties coming through and how he deals with things falling apart, things working, uh, a dragon showing up in the middle that wasn't there before. Uh, it's just great magic adventure.
1: My favorite was that at the beginning of the book where the setup is um, these people go see the Oracle and they say, how do we take down these pilgrim parties? How do we end this forever and, and screw over Mr. Chesney? And this is the solution. But you forget that through the book because Dirk and Blade become so, uh, and the whole family becomes so obsessed with getting this right, even though they keep screwing everything up. That you forget that the whole point is to screw everything up, um, yeah. and so you're cheering for them to to do well. Uh, anyway, so Veronica, did we miss anything vital in the story?
2: No, I think uh, for me, I just always think about if you were behind the scenes at like a really messed up magical Six Flags and the employees are like disgruntled and tired of it. <laughs> this is like what that book is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I was uh, reminded of um, uh, like a little European village or something where... Everybody's, everybody wants to update the houses and they're like, we're tired of living in these drafty old houses. And then, you know, the city council comes and they're like, no, 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 no. You can't, up, you can't update anything because tourism depends on the charming brick exteriors, uh, you know and
2: yeah it, and it's like if they took out they're like all oh, right and they take out all their blacksmithing equipment like right before the people arrive and then they put it away once they're gone like oh i guess it's yeah time.
1: exactly exactly <laughs> um okay so let's talk about the characters a little bit in this because um i i found them uh one endlessly charming and two really tough to keep track of because there's a surprising number of them that are thrown oh, yeah. at you in the first couple of chapters and so i'm like I'm like, wait, this is Griffin number four or five? Which one? And you know, I couldn't there remember. Are five, right? Yeah, That's... I think there's five Griffin children and two regular children. Well, there's six. Wow. Are there really? Yeah.
0: Wow. Kit. Yeah, Lita. Don <laughs> <laughs> uh, Whatever. <laughs> this is riveting, yeah. riveting radio. Pretty, people. Uh, pretty uh, it was pretty a horse or pretty? Yeah, those are horses. These are horses. Uh. Yeah wow we
1: can't this is how expert we are in the book that we're talking about okay so rest assured dear audience that we know exactly what we're talking about at all times it's fine it's all fine um anyway yeah we we've got Dirk and Blade and who are our other main characters walk us through them and and who's your favorite to read and why
2: uh okay so there's Shauna um Dirk's human daughter and Blade is he human son. Yep. And then there's six griffins. I think Kit, Elda, Lita, Killette, Don.
1: Is that I, it? I think that's it. it, I might think be it. So it's
2: five. Five griffins that he Enough. made from his DNA. So they're his children who are <laughs> this sounds insane. I, it's so insane. <laughs> um, and then his wife Mara. And uh, then there's just like a whole bunch of other people. Like a lot of other people. Um, like a it's just a small universe of people. But I think was my favorite um honestly i like dirk i like reading about dirk he's sort of like a ha- he all he wants to do is like invent weird animal creatures with his magic and be left alone and he's really not capable of this job which is why they give it to him and i just really feel for him the whole time um S- so he's like cycling through trying to think of like interesting creatures as a way of like surviving this ordeal that he's being <laughs>
1: through. his coping mechanism is to try to figure out what new magical DNA to splice together yes um,
2: and I, I think I find his parts the most amusing because he's constantly dealing like like groups of people will descend and each of them have a problem you know and he's just constantly trying to deal with like he's like a customer service representative <laughs> basically <laughs>
1: yeah that sounds about right actually especially like it, it's funny toward the end i'm not i'm not spoiling anything here so don't worry but towards the end there's a conversation that happens when everything hits the fan uh you know everything's going crazy uh and then we get to the uh to the quiet conversation at the end and it's like a it's like a badly chaired meeting with a bunch of bureaucrats and they're all like well but no but but the contract says and they're like We're not even in your world. Where's your jurisdiction? And, you know, you get all these like funny bureaucratic and legal terms being thrown around, um, you know, much like uh, much like a bad customer service call where they just read off the script or something.
2: It reminds me of like the children's fantasy version of Brazil or something where the humor comes from the bureaucracy, like the intense bureaucracy of it. Um, and I love that kind of thing. I don't know why, but yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it too. As uh, as somebody who gets fed up with bureaucracy pretty easily. <laughs> so um, anyway, so I, I agree. Dirk is definitely the, the most uh, interesting to read because he gets the most screen time out of everybody for sure. But he um, is so he's this he's supposedly a hapless wizard he was kicked out of wizarding school when he was a young man for uh screwing up uh, demon raising and then the demon goes crazy and destroys everything and they have to get rid of it and so he's disgraced uh and so they think that he's gonna be a, a bumbling moron um
0: but he it turns out he's pretty capable he just uh he's is, a very
2: good wizard and he's he just a weird dude yeah, he's weird.
0: Yeah, and, and so, what's one of the very first things he has to do as the Dark Lord is he ends up having to go and raise the very accidentally raise the very same demon that got him kicked out of Wizarding School. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> accidentally,
2: mm-hmm. he's like. I mean, the thing is that in other works, he would really be like a creep because he's fascinated with like gene splicing. So he's like building children, children cat griffin or whatever hybrids in eggs and stuff. And we're supposed
1: to be like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's the bit about like his first two Griffin children were too big because he used like jungle cat DNA. Um, and so then he uses house cat DNA just to bring him down a little bit. Yeah, it's got to
2: keep it manageable.
1: It's like, yeah, you're right now that, oh man, how did I not detect this? Maybe I did a little bit in the book where it's like uh, mm-hmm. shades of, of some pretty awful stuff from the early 20th century or something. Anyway, we yeah. won't get into that uh yeah i i I do enjoy Dirk quite a bit and the way that she that diana Wynne jones writes him and the others um is really great to me because it she is really good at uh giving you the other character's perception of him as a bumbling wizard and that is what you feel like you're getting for the first couple of chapters until she kind of leads you into understanding that no he's uh He's a decent chap, and he's a good wizard. And um, if he's not careful, he might actually
0: succeed at uh, being the Dark Lord. You very uh, much have had to, like,
2: the... actively sabotage him. Sorry.
0: No, you're totally fine. <laughs> uh, you get this feeling of the of him being a very that he's simple but not stupid. Yes. He's a but he's the Samwise that... Gamgee. Yeah, but pair that with the fact that he can splice DNA and and build these other children. Like it's everything about each of these characters is that there is some. Level of absurdity to their n- characteristics that makes you go, oh, okay, but you can connect with it. It's uh, like one of my favorite characters, uh, Kit, the Griffin. Just the idea of this hyper-intelligent Griffin who's planning out battles, who's doing everything here—like it's absurd, but it's enjoyable. It's it's really something you can like. Oh yeah, go Kit! This is awesome.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The absurdity
1: of it, I is one of the things that I really enjoyed and it's one of the things that kind of places it in that uh, younger audience camp where a- an adult might not tolerate all the weirdness if they're not ready for it. You know, if they're not primed for it and you just handed this, hey, yeah, yeah, you might like this and they've never read a fantasy book before. They'd be like,
0: oh, five,
1: <laughs> five Griffin children and flying pigs and, you know, w- what's happening here? Um, but for a kid, I think it's, It's a bit like watching one of those uh, cartoons that's on a lot of caffeine, um, where they just kind of accept that, yeah, this is the way things go. And things are loud and noisy and um, chaotic and completely off the wall. Uh, I've never
2: had to talk about it with anyone before. And so I've never said any of these things like five Griffin children out loud. So I'm only (laughs) just realizing (laughs) that what I sent you is completely (laughs) bananas.
1: (laughs) You know what? I, I was telling you this in, in the uh, in, in the the virtual locker room before the game uh, when we were talking before the recording. One of the things I love about the author shelf series is that we've is some of the books that have been handed to us are ones that uh, that I, I had read before or would have read anyway. But there have been a couple that like this one or. Um, like larry correa's book that whatever he chose i and uh shoot what was the other one i probably wouldn't have read the truth for years if it weren't for this but anyway reading books like this where i never would have picked it up uh never would have even heard of it probably uh without this and so i love getting exposure to to (laughs) stuff like this anyway so yeah yeah sure it's bizarre but still well done (laughs) uh okay so let's before we get further into the the plot and maybe toward the end of it, let's talk a little bit more about um, the setting. No, we've I think we've we've done enough with the setting, but let's let's talk about the tone with which she writes this book, um, and what we feel like. What is, what is she going for tone wise? Where where do you see it sitting uh, as far as its tone, Veronica?
2: Well, uh, I don't know if you came across this in looking this book up, but it's. The original like basis for this book is she wrote a nonfiction book that's like, uh, what's it called? The Tough Guide to Fantasyland. So it's basically like the tour guide leader manual to oh, fantasy world. Okay. So she's kind of like lightly trying to skewer or, or like with affection, try to skewer kind of sword and sorcery fantasy stories. And so the tone of parody is definitely like in this book, which is based on that guide that she wrote. Um, And so it's, it's supposed to be like taking, I think playful and affectionate shots at those kind of epics, but it also then just gets involved in its own thing and becomes like emotionally engaged, almost like it's take, like it, it's definitely taking the emotions of these characters seriously. So it's very like, I, I don't know if this book could get published now um, because of that balance. It's kind of it's very strange.
1: Yeah, no, they, I mm-hmm. I could probably count on one hand the number of like popular books from the 90s that would still get published today. Like yeah. it was just a very different time yeah. um, when you mm-hmm. could <gasps> gasp in horror, write a single fantasy book that stood alone by itself, you know can't really do that anymore. Imagine. Although this is a duology, I guess she did follow it up, but yeah, this is def- it definitely stands by itself. Um anyway, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, no, this idea of uh at the beginning she's just hitting you over the head with that parody and so it's the from the first chapter, you get like all this talk about the dark lord and all this stuff, and you're like what is going on? And oh, you know, we have to you do these pilgrim parties and you don't know what it is, but all you know is there's dragons and griffins and elves and all this stuff that is being introduced. So yeah, she's hitting you over the head with, this is a fantasy book and look at how many fantasy elements I can cram in there. The book then starts to take itself really seriously. Um, there's emotional moments. There's a character who dies, uh, we think dies at the end. And then, you know, there, it's a really kind of a gut punch to us and to Dirk. Um, anyway, and then at the end of it, she kind of, she has built up all this, um, like if this was a play, this would be all the the scenery around you on the stage. And then at the very last part of the book, she fires up the flamethrower and just burns it all down and reminds you that this is, uh, this is complete parody. Um, and you know, really clever commentary on a few things. So, uh, Mm -hmm. let's, let's talk. We can't go anymore without talking about the end of the book as far as I'm concerned because I want to talk about the commentary that she is uh giving us about our world cuz there's the meta narrative and maybe we can talk about this as a critique or at least a, a a friendly jab at fantasy itself but there's also a lot of like exploitation narrative and stuff going on in this book and uh, we should probably talk about that so yeah, I was, I'm generally resistant to message fiction. Um, like if if that's the whole point of the book, then I don't really care. But if it's woven in organically um, and, uh, and still maintains the story, then I'm generally good with it. And that's where I felt like
0: this book stood. Ryan, how'd you feel about the commentary? Yeah, the, for me, I, I noticed a lot of the messaging along those lines of exploitation. Like we get some of that with, uh, the dwarves, we get some of that with the world as a whole, so, but the sub-character, Mara, the wife, Yeah, a lot of the work that she has done and the, and things that are being handled on the side, she's working to remove aspects of the exploitation of the pilgrim parties just kind of off to the side here, and so it, it doesn't become a over-the-head major plot point that, like, oh, you, you have to understand what I'm trying to say here, but it's still there for you to grab and, and hold on to, and I appreciated that because I think very. I, I don't know many people who enjoy being beat over the head with uh, any sort of personal philosophy or anything in, in especially in fantasy. Uh, it should be like it's there. It's it's in all the works. It's worth you know it's worth trying to find. But if you're coming into your book and saying this is the way you should think, really frustrating. Uh, so it's nice to have it be a plot point for a uh, for Mara. Um, and for kind of uh, the world as a whole without it being Dirk or Blade trying to solve the problems of exploitation. No, they're just trying to achieve the goal of being the Dark Lord and doing what they're supposed to do. And we discover that in the process of trying to do what's right, these other things that aren't quite so right start to fall apart a little bit. And we have uh, a a dragon character who comes back from the past and says, what has happened to this world, basically, uh, and gives us another lens to look through these things like how are you so incapable as magicians like i you should be able to do this by now any fledgling dragon could do what you're supposed to do at this point so i i appreciate the 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 balance with which that was struck yeah
1: and so tell us uh, run us through at the very end what we find out the the exploitation goes deeper than just the uh the pilgrim parties uh but mr chesney has been doing what now with exporting something or other
0: literally been mining the planet for earth and magic like they they just ship these train loads of dirt into the other world but because it's the the world itself is magic it brings magic to the other side of the world and it provides them with energy uh provides them with magic in our world it's essentially how disneyland is run we assume at this point in time (laughs) (laughs) all the all the machines just you know they got
1: rid of their uh First, it was combustion engines, you know, and then the move from oil to ethanol, and now it just runs on straight Disney magic.
0: Pretty much just filtered in from a cartoon world that we punched a hole into at some exactly. point in time in a in a reactor I- I accident. So wouldn't
2: that make a shocking amount of sense? Uh, to yes. find out, it,
0: yeah, it would. It would explain where a lot of my money has gone the last few years. Yeah. <laughs> As if by magic, Ryan's wallet
1: empties every time he approaches California. <laughs> um okay so i'm trying to think we've got the pilgrim parties we've got the the dirt exporting um and then that's what is there any other like big exploitation bits he's exploiting the characters in the world and the world itself that's about all you can do i'm not sure there's any more exploitation that you can get to um then you know robbing people of their dignity and the world of itself
2: And there's the whole thing where he like gets paid off by families to like make sure that people die on the pilgrims. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're marked as expendable. So I don't know if you want to go into that.
1: You pay a bunch of money to go on this pilgrim party, which, by the way, side note, greatest name ever. It's the most perfect name for like, like, oh, it's it's a pilgrim party. We're going to go on a pilgrim party and then. So you pay a bunch of money and you can go on that. And that's commentary in itself. You can only do it if you're rich. Uh, And then you go and do this tour. And it turns out it's pretty real. It kills somewhere on the order of 2,500 of these, uh, of this world's citizens, the magical world citizens every year. Uh, And so it turns out it's pretty real. And while you're there, you can mark, you can pay extra money, mark a family or family member or friend as expendable and then the tour guides will see to it that they don't make it to the end of the tour. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's pretty messed up. And uh, it actually kind of gets to um, the way, one one way, and I've talked about this, uh, I don't know, many, many episodes ago, uh, one way that the quote is misunderstood. There's a quote um, that we all know, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But one of the points of the quote isn't that the people who get power are corrupted. It's the people around them who are corrupted, right? And so Mr. Chesney has all this power and all this money and he creates this uh, this Pilgrim Party system. And what what he has done is corrupted a bunch of people who kind of feed off that system and gain their own little slice of power from it. And so you have Barnabas who is in on the whole uh, dirt export thing. uh, and, And you have the wizard guides who are basically brought into this murder system, and they're corrupted by it as well.
2: And they also, uh, there's this really disturbing stuff about how the wizard guides always get laid because like, the prettiest girl will fall all over herself for them. And I was like, whoa, for children, this book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that does... I, man, another digression here. I I meant to mention this earlier. One of the things that I like about a book like this for kids is that it doesn't necessarily shy away from those things. She doesn't dwell on it and she doesn't make it explicit, but she is willing to introduce an element like that. uh, Yeah,
2: there's a lot of things that when, I mean, I was 15 when I read it, so I wasn't like a child or anything, but uh, I was very innocent and I did not understand some of the things that were going on
1: no for sure no i I, i've already mentioned before one of my first uh, big kid books that my mom gave me when i was nine was sphere by michael crichton and i loved it but (laughs) about about a third of that just went right over my head Mm because i wasn't ready for half the words or you know adult situations in that book uh anyway all right so ryan what do you want to bring up with dark lord dirkholm what did you
0: enjoy about it was there anything that frustrated you uh so i, ha- I can speak a little bit this is uh, something i really enjoyed but is frustrating as someone who also works a little bit in the field i, I listened through this on audiobook as is very common for, um, you. for me yes um we already talked a little bit about keeping track of multiple characters and everything I have to give props to the audiobook narrator on this uh, i love their choice of how to make uh, you can tell when they were doing a griffin voice you did, couldn't always tell which griffin it was uh, but it was a unique sound for a griffin and everything um and just uh, for me I, I practice reading other books and i do other things when i'm when i'm reading audiobook narration things uh, and it is, it is a very difficult thing to create unique characters when you have a, a vocal range of this much and you have 40 characters to deal to, to work with. And for those uh, who aren't for, seeing for the record, anything,
1: he is holding his
0: hands approximately 12 inches apart. <laughs> Thank you. I realized that we were in an auditorium, <laughs> and, uh, auditorium <laughs> medium here. Um, but so that's just kind of as a side note here for this book, if you if you are an audiobook person, this is a great audiobook to to listen to. And they do a really good job. You will. It was a little difficult to try and keep track of which Griffin was which and uh, horses versus Griffins and uh, everything else there. But um, other than that, really great audiobook uh, for the book as a whole. Any frustrations? Um, Actually, that was, that was one of my frustrations. I, I tend to switch
1: between the two um, depending on, you know, if I'm gardening or uh, sitting down and reading. And so every time that I would get into the book itself and read it with my eyeballs, it made so much more sense to me, <laughs> especially yeah. like the first three chapters I listened on audiobook, uh, and then I actually restarted it and read it so that I could comprehend what I had just gone through because he, she throws what 30 40 characters at you in really quick succession yeah
2: and if you miss their name like godspeed Uh, (laughs) but this was my first encounter with the audiobook uh just preparing for this podcast uh and i so i already knew the names and i remembered the characters so for me it was just delightful because um like I think when the demon shows up and he's French, I just like lost it because <laughs> it's like what a choice. I mean, really amazing.
1: So British, um, yeah. So British. Uh, yeah. Find what's who's the most evil character in your book?
2: Make give him French. a
1: French. Give him a French accent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, let's see. Did speaking of clever little turns, did either of you catch that um, our two main characters, like the the two instruments of Uh, Mr. Chesney's demise are named Dirk and Blade. And what is a Dirk? It's a dagger. It's a long dagger. So you have two (sighs) blades being aimed at the heart of Mr. Chesney. So I love. Also
2: the name Blade. So my only encounter with that name was is Blade the Vampire. Um,
1: Oh. (laughs) Wesley Snipes Blade. So I hadn't even thought of that.
2: Yeah, and I watched that like as a kid before this book, so I was like, why is he named Blade? But apparently it's more more, slightly more common in England. I don't know.
1: (laughs) According
2: to the internet.
1: Yeah, according to the World Wide Web.
2: (laughs) I've never met anyone named Blade, so I can't confirm.
1: This mystical land of England.
2: England. They do
1: some weird stuff over there, I'll tell you what. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, let's see. There was at least one jab at Tolkien. Um... (laughs) Naming a dwarf Galadriel. And yeah. uh yes. Dirk had been yes. wondering ever since he discovered this, <laughs> what Galadriel's parents had been thinking of. <laughs> um, I really
2: enjoyed that. And do you know that she took classes from him? Right? Do you know the whole like I didn't insular nope. Yeah, so there's a I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. I don't think it is. I think it's a quote from her. She used to attend his lectures and he would mumble at the board, like, because he wanted to go back and write Lord of the Rings, right. and he would still get paid whether people showed up or not um, to his <laughs> lecture. So his intention, according to her, was to be as boring as possible so that no one would attend and he could just go work and not do the lecture. <laughs> but she kept showing up because <laughs> she thought his ramblings were interesting. And so that is like the Diana Wynne-Jones-Tolkien connection.
1: I uh, didn't know that. I, I actually feel like i may have read that before but didn't connect that that was her and that was this yes. book i was reading so that's fantastic um i i in college went on several dates with a girl named lorian and i, I that was why you were attracted well <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: i i met her and i was like look i know i'm i'm the eight thousandth person to ask but i gotta ask and she's like yeah my parents are big fans so.
2: Wow. It
1: it happens. And I have met a Galadriel and it's oh. You know, you got to wonder what were your parents thinking? Like I I gave my kids some pretty uh you know, off the wall names, I'll admit, but at least they're names. They're real names. Anyway. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I loved the jab. Okay, any other any other bits of writing that you guys want to pull out and and talk about uh from this book? Hmm. How about uh, the rules? Uh, You you were mentioning the rule book that she had already written, apparently, and uh, that becomes the black book of rules for the wizards. Uh, It has stuff like um, the wizard, the wizard guides. If you're brought on as a wizard guide to bring these pilgrim parties through, wizards must wear robes and have beards and long white hair and carry a staff at all times. Yes. And,
2: and they must be men, no female wizards allowed. Right. There's a whole like undercurrent of like, all the women in this book are like secretly fixing things while right. the men are sort of like <laughs> fumbling around trying to make things work. And that is of course, I mean, seems clearly
1: intentional. <laughs> Which, <laughs> so. yeah, I, I think this should bring us to the, the meta uh, discussion of this as commentary on the fantasy genre where, yeah, wizards must be men, et et cetera, et cetera. Um, And we don't kind of get to see behind the scenes of all these stories that we love, uh, you know, who's really making the world go around. Um, What what was I going to bring up? The, with the meta commentary, there's a ton of jabs all throughout. And one that I loved maybe the most was at the very beginning of the book, uh the what karita karita is the the witch who wants to bring everything down or wizard i guess they call they still call the women wizards um she's the wizard who wants to bring everything down and so she's the one who starts the whole process um of getting dirk on board and when they visit dirk's house uh everybody comes and welcomes him as the new dark lord and tells him what he has to do uh, and then on her way out she gets trampled by some horses on Dirk's property, you know, like his his horse children, because um, <laughs> they don't. I don't remember they don't like Karita or something, and so she gets trampled. She ends up in like a coma for a week. Her doctor puts her in a coma for a week, and you know is letting her recover, et cetera, et cetera. But the story hasn't really started yet, and so you're allowed to do that as a character. You're allowed to get injured and go into a coma, and you know it's it's horrible. At the end of the book. The story is in full swing. We're coming up on the uh, the climax of the story, and Blade and um, and I can't, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. They're both trying to rescue the girl from the Rebel? clutches of the yeah Revel. Blade and Revel are trying to rescue what's her name from uh, from the bandits, and uh, Blade gets trampled by a whole herd of horses, dozens of them. You know, just run over him, God. and he and he gets up and he goes, "Oh man, that hurt." You know, and he's kind of like bruised up for a little while after that, but he's fine. And uh, just in case you didn't get it, she has the exact same thing happen to uh, Revel as well. Uh, a day or two later, they translocate to a new place, and he immediately gets run over by a herd of horses. And he gets up and goes, <laughs> "Oh yeah, you're right, that did hurt." <laughs> but because the story is happening, it's it's the whole it's a commentary on like plot armor or something uh, where things things have to continue. You can't then put your characters in a coma because the story's going now.
2: Yeah, and she also has this keen sense of internal consistency. So like she knows that you can't have one character trampled by horses and be fine and then other character be trampled and get up. But she she does it for the sake of convenience, but she also seems to know about it, <laughs> like understands that it's inconsistent, which is every time I found myself like kind of annoyed by something in the book, I also... Like half the time, I'd be like, "Oh well, but that's on purpose." Like she is aware of it, so it's hard to get annoyed because you're like, "Well, <laughs> it's entirely intentional." So.
0: And it's it's a it's a true art form to be able to strike a balance. And I honestly, I don't think it would land with everybody, but to be able to strike that balance of saying you can't hide your mistake, you know, you write off every mistake or every inconsistency as, "Oh no, I'm making a meta a meta statement here," or whatever. Like you can't get away <laughs> with that. But there's enough. Uh, the, the meta statements are consistent enough through the whole story that you feel that they're intentional and not just, ah, oh, crap, I forgot to, yeah I forgot that I did this earlier and now I have to change it and fix it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
1: So any, uh, final thoughts on the book? Uh, we we've got maybe 10 minutes left to, uh, to record. And so any final thoughts that we want to bring up before we talk a little bit about chosen ones?
2: Um, well, the one thing that I that really struck me while I was reading this is because now since I read it when I was younger, uh, I have obviously had more life experience, and so I've traveled to places where you know when you're traveling and you become aware that like you participating as a tourist in a particular area is actually like kind of terrible and you shouldn't be there. <laughs> like I don't know if that's happened. Like <laughs> one time I was hiking in uh, what is it called? It's like one of those coastal cities in Italy. um, And there was just like someone wrote tourists. I don't know if you guys swear on this. (laughs) Sorry. You're (laughs) fine. Anyway, they just wrote tourists on the banister. And it was clearly like someone who lived in the town who wrote this. And I was like, Oh, like I'm hiking and trying to see this beautiful thing. But like people live here all year round and they must be so annoyed with us. And (laughs) um, that's like, this whole book is basically about like the tourism Sort of practice of tourism and how it uh, kind of preys on local economies and stuff. Anyway, I just thought that was funny and also <laughs> kind of hit me.
1: Yeah, it's time. It, that is a it, it's a that's a thorny subject because you take a place like Iceland, you know where. Okay, so for those of you listening, three years from now, uh, we're recording this in the middle of all the COVID nineteen stuff, right? Everybody's locked down. Basically, there's no such thing as tourism right now. And you think of a place like Iceland, where the majority of their economy right now comes from tourism, uh, where on the one hand, exactly, I think you're right. It's like, you know, are we exploiting this place for for what? You know, for what exactly? It's just so we can see some new vistas or whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, Ryan and I, in a similar situation, we live in Utah, where the state has taken... I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars uh, of a hit during all oh, this. I hadn't
2: even thought about that. Yeah. no one comes here for to visit. So it's... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Illinois, so, yeah, you know. il- yeah, Illinois is uh, is very popular. Come for be cold, the getaway ah, in a um, field. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, it's like it can be a real drag, or you know, it can be the thing that keeps your town alive. Uh, if that's all you've got, so yes. uh, so I don't know how to feel about it, but it is. It's. I think because it's such a
0: thorny issue, it's an interesting one to think about in a book like well, this. Not knowing anything about the secondary book in this series, this duology or anything, I would be curious if she explores what happens to the world when the pilgrim parties disappear and they have to make all those changes because some of the commentary at the end of the book, especially from Karita uh, and Mara, uh, they're saying, yeah, the, the the female wizards are working on trying to figure out how to transition us back. Uh, they make that comment that this is going to take time, and yeah, uh, the the god character who shows up, whose name I can't remember, um, Almeida or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> um, like Ricardo, or yeah, sure, <laughs> the god Ricardo, yeah. <laughs> but he shows up and uh, he punishes, um, uh. Mr. Chesney with uh, 40 years in the, in the rock, whatever, but he's, he basically tells them you need to reclaim the world and it's going to take time. You're not, it's not something that's just going to happen. And it would be interesting to see this world in the next, uh, at the next level and say, so pilgrim parties are gone, or do you adjust the pilgrim parties? Do you figure out a way to make it work where it's less kind of, you're able to benefit more from it? I was gonna go for the word exploitative and i just wasn't well, sure i was gonna get it so <laughs> i i think that's that might be part of the the uh,
1: exploitation is the fact that it's not like carita who's the head of the the wizard school or i don't know what are uh, barnabas or whoever the other leadership figures are in this magical land of dirkholm i guess we'll call it uh, that's just his house but whatever in the magical land they're not the ones who are benefiting it's Mr. Chesney, who's from our world, who goes in and tells people what for and makes them take part in this uh, this tourism thing, you know, and is literally coming in from the outside and exploiting them instead of them making it uh, their own thing for their own benefit. So I could see a, a situation where the pilgrim parties continue, but take a, a wildly different form because it's under the purview of the actual residents.
2: Yeah, I, I read the second one in this series i think i actually read it first and then discovered there was an original and read it um but i do think they address like what happens after if you're curious oh,
0: wow. mm-hmm. there you go ryan uh, good to know i i too have read a book series out of order i read uh, the talismans of shanara first yes oh. that's, <laughs> it's it's fine nice. it's just book, book four out of four he's like he's like give me the most exciting one What's, yeah. I like I liked the cover art and I grabbed it and didn't realize there was a number on it and <laughs> I read it and did not understand anything so yeah. so yeah
1: if um this bizarre rambling disjointed conversation hasn't gotten you excited for Dark Lord of durkholm then I'm sorry but you should go read it anyway uh, so if you're listening to this definitely go give it a read i I highly recommend it it's it's not something that's going to be like your next great passion that you'll discuss for decades on end, but, um, but it's a lot of fun. It, it's, for those of our listeners who have been with us for a while, it's a, it's a thoroughly level two book, which we don't get very often. Level one being it's just a rip-roar and good story. Level two being social and political commentary and level three being like personal betterment kind of stuff. This is definitely level two, which we don't get enough of um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, For
2: me, it was a great quarantine read. I know this podcast will outlast this quarantine. God, please. Um, (laughs) It was great in that way because it was just like it didn't require too much of me. I don't have a whole lot to give right now. So it was just like, ah, this is like a nice place to escape to. And like, it makes me think a little bit.
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely absolutely okay so i I think that'll do it for that discussion but if anybody has any uh, questions or comments that they would like us to address hit us up on twitter or instagram go find our discord server and ask questions and we'll see what we can do to answer those Uh, but in the meantime veronica you have just published a new book it's called chosen ones speaking of finding out what happens after the end tell us a little bit about chosen ones
2: Sure, yeah. So uh, Chosen Ones is about a group of people who they defeated a dark lord figure <laughs> known as the Dark One. Uh very creative name for that guy. Uh when they were teenagers and now it's like 10 years later and they're dealing with kind of the psychological repercussions of having gone through something that traumatic as teenagers, but then there's also kind of like unresolved issues in the world at large as a result of this like series of catastrophic events and this Dark One's death. Um that they need to address. So that that's the foundation of Chosen Ones is like, what happens after the like big heroic, like kind of YA novel of your youth. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, yeah no, it's really interesting stuff because we we haven't really known about stuff like, uh, what, what do we used to call it in World War One Shell shock, right? Yeah. Uh, now it's PTSD or something along those lines. Uh, there, there's all these mental issues that go along with traumatic events uh often you know in in the scenarios we're talking about here, war would be a, a big part of that or doing battle with a dark one um so we we don't think about that often in our stories uh and then as you say there's the other part of that which is the uh the the physical damage that the kind of uh what do we call it the extraneous um uh damage that goes on both to the characters and to the world at large it's yeah. like uh zach snyder did a little bit of that by giving us 30 minutes of buildings falling down at the end of man of steel you know it's that kind <laughs> oh of thing Oh god! Like, yeah like what <laughs> what happens when two gods actually collide in the air like all the buildings fall down oh holy crap mm-hmm. um that sort of yeah. thing so yeah that's really interesting
2: but i think one of the reasons that dark lord of darkholm occurred to me for this is that it was it, i like its balance of like poking at the tropes that you love, which I think she loves them too. And I love the chosen one trope too, but then also like letting yourself get invested in that world um, and take it with a, you know, sort of reasonably seriously, like as if real people are living in it. Yeah, And that's kind of chosen ones is kind of my, my way of balancing those two things.
1: So what is the chosen one trope in your mind and how are you taking it on?
2: Well, uh I feel like most sci-fi fantasy stories are chosen one stories. Uh so it's like one uh, a character who is set apart usually by fate or destiny or some like special skill or both um to defeat like a being of not a being of great evil but like a some kind of evil force to save the world usually. So it's very, that's like a very general way of putting it. But for me, it was like Harry Potter. And also, I'm looking at my books um, <laughs> Also by Frank Herbert. Um, Lord of the Rings has elements of chosen one tropes, like all, you know, sort of our Buffy is significantly a chosen one story. Sure. The only one I was exposed to with a female character when I was young. So um, yeah, chosen one stories, the yep. foundation of our genre. <laughs>
1: It's uh yeah, it's uh, a story that's going to keep popping up forever and ever in a uh, a Judeo-Christian society. Um yes. <laughs> it, it's an awfully familiar kind of story. So, mm-hmm. well very interesting. Any any other tidbits you want to give people to uh send them toward Chosen One or Chosen uh, Ones? Sorry.
2: Well, it has a good audiobook?
1: <laughs> yeah, who's the narrator?
2: Uh Dakota Fanning. Really? Yeah.
1: Look yes. at yeah, you go. Did-
2: did a remarkable job. It was very, very cool. And there's a lot of voices. So uh, the book is told through these narrative sections like a regular book, but then it also has these interstitials throughout. They're like government documents. Some of them are like product reviews or excerpts from textbooks and stuff like that. And so um, those are kind of spliced throughout to help tell the story, but then also to kind of build the world. So if you like fake documents, as I really do, um, <laughs> they are in the ones. Yeah.
1: Very good. Very good. All right. Well, I, hopefully that gets people excited. It sounds interesting to me. This is your first, um, foray into adult oriented, uh, fantasy. So yes. it should be interesting. Was it, uh, was it fun to get into that or was it nerve wracking to write for an older audience?
2: I didn't really think about it that much. I just because
1: just write. Uh oh,
2: my dog is about to. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: all right. We we heart dogs around here.
2: Okay. Yes, you did tell me that the vibe was casual, but um, basically, I just tried to think about what the book is demanding of me. So, um, and like what the characters are going through as they're moving forward through time. So, I was just trying to think about the characters themselves, and I didn't think too much about the audience that's something i think about later
1: yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense good well i hope people go check it out um, and support your new book it was released last month and so it's uh, it's available now go check it out chosen ones uh in the meantime thank you everybody for listening and uh joining us here for this episode uh if you enjoy what we do on the legendarium then visit our patreon page we would love to see you there patreon.com slash legendarium and support or not just support us but uh join the conversation at thelegendarium.reddit.com. Go to Discord, like I said earlier. We would love to see you in all the places, on all the social media. Veronica, thank you so much for joining us today. It was our pleasure to have you on.
2: (laughs) Thanks, this was great.
1: All right, see you guys later.